Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So those of us who have followed this journey so far, um, let me recapitulate what it exactly we've tried to look at. And in the first talk, uh, we spoke about the revelatory ideas that are really taking shape from the Sefer Yetzirah through to a book such as Rav Yosef Chikatila's Sha'are Orah, and then the Zohar, which really, and oh, through the Bahir, and the way the Sha'are Orah kind of synthesizes that to create the Kabbalistic map that we have going forward. The Zohar then takes that map and provides a quantum shift in revelation about how that cosmic and spiritual map of the relationship between divine creativity and human existence can be applied to the entire Torah and to show the people of Israel in that cosmic picture all the way from Adam de la Ela right down to this concrete world and our place in it and in fact even in historical reality how that revelation takes effect and what it means for us and what we can do about it and then in the last week we looked at the revolution of the revolution and revelation of the further major nexus point uh, in the revelation of Kabbalistic ideas uh, which uh, is in, in Tzfat and we, we talked about two books primarily we talked about Pardes Rimonim of Rav Moshe Cordovero which really kind of synthesizes and systematizes all of the Kabbalistic revelations that have happened up until the 16th century and then the Ari just that's his starting point and he's exploding in a completely uh, new if i mean though i hesitate to use the word new because the re would have seen everything that he's saying as a commentary on the zohar but there were definitely uh, entire new fields of perspective on cosmic processes and on the human being and its effect on our reality and what we do and how we look at things and what the world actually is and oh, at, a, at a totally new level. So tonight, I don't know, some of the more astute among you may have noticed that I didn't bring any books in tonight. And the reality is, is that because during the last week in thinking about this talk, I've, I, I underwent not once, but probably twice, a type of shvirata kelim a type of smashing of the vessels that we spoke about last week. Because what I want to communicate is that in the last four to f 400 years, or the last four centuries, the revelations of the Ari and the ideas bubbling forth from that wellspring are so impenetrably deep and so profound that their influence is everywhere <laughs> and they have really determined the course of the last 450 years or so since the Ari. And so it's very difficult to pick any particular book or even two books to talk about to compare in an ocean of responses to the Ari that have gone on to formulate the Kabbalistic world of today. Some of you have made sufficient progress in your reading, maybe even beyond where I'm at, where you have come to realize that there are more, there's more than one school of Kabbalah in the world today. And that Kabbalah seems to mean different things to a range of people. And I'm not even talking about the wider world, even within the Jewish world itself, even within the Jewish textual world, even within the observant Jewish textual world. This concept of Kabbalah and what leads to it and what defines it seems to have a great many <laughs> options and opinions. And how do those opinions and options interconnect? What's the relationship of them? 
And I thought that that might be a more useful question to explore tonight than any specific text or texts. Although in the course of discussing that, I'll obviously mention key texts of the last four centuries that have deeply influenced the revelation of Kabbalah in the Jewish world in ways that some of us are not even aware. And so that's what I'm going to do. And if that doesn't work, then people are welcome to leave now. I do understand, but I'm not going to talk about any specific texts. <laughs> So last week, and it's interesting how one would enter into this, but I'll do it kind of chronologically because that's the easiest way to do it. Last week, we spoke about the, Ari, the transmission of the Ari's ideas in two basic streams, if you like, through two primary students. There is the main student, of the Ari. Well, when I say the main one, the most famous one, and the one that has written by far the most of his teacher's teachings, and who spent decades doing that project so that we would now have as, you know, as such a comprehensive overview of what the Ari was saying, and that person, of course, is Chaim Vital. Oh, Rabbi Chaim Vital. Of Chaim bin Rav Yosef, Chaim Vital Calabresi. They were from Calabria, the family, very interesting family. But Vital is only one mode in which the Lurianic transmission was made. The other, of course, was anyone remember? Yeah. Rabbi Yisrael Sarug. Academics kind of argue as to whether or not they feel scholars of the period, historians argue whether or not they think that Sarug was actually in Tzvat, but it doesn't really matter. His influence as a transmitter of Lurianic ideas was overwhelming. So that by the time you enter into the 17th century, you've basically got these two, I wouldn't say competing, but these two different strands circulating in manuscript and the conflicts weren't great because they basically governed different geographic areas. The Sarugian Kabbalah got more, Lurianic Kabbalah got more into Europe in a general sense, and the writings of Vital were circulating more in the Middle East and North Africa during the latter part of the 1500s and the early part of the 1600s. And if you would recall, and it's important to remember this, if you would recall, what was one of the most noticeable differences between the Kabbalah of Rabbi Chaim Vital and the Kabbalah of Israel Sarug? Now, it's, it's, it's a very, very specific question because one would be doing very well if one would even be able to talk about Lurianic Kabbalah generally without even specifying the different aspects of his students. But on the assumption that we can do that, does anyone remember what the next kind of in the next generation following the Ari, there's some very differences, great differences when you look at the way in which they are transmitted and what they are saying. We did touch on this last week, but I'm going to, as they say in the classics, touch upon it again. Does anyone remember? Practice. Sorry? Practice. I'm actually, I'm, I hear you, I'm actually referring to a specific point in the cosmology of creation. How you get from an infinite God to a finite world. What we call, what we call, and this term is kind of a little borrowed from Jewish philosophy, but what we call the seder, what's the meaning of the word seder? Order. The seder hishtalshalut, the unfolding. What is the fundamental difference between Vital and Sarug on the order of the Hishtal Shalut? Sarug starts well before Vital. Vital comes and tells you, I'm going to tell you about the contraction of the ends off, about the symptom of the ends off. You can't get any higher than that. I'm going geometric on you. And Sarug goes, ah, geometry. 
we got way many levels before Vital, and I'm going to tell you about them. And does anyone remember what it is that is at the top of the Seder Ishtal Shalut as outlined by Sarug? Where does it start? At what point? It does not start with the Tzimtzum of the Dinim of contraction as per Chaim Vital and even some of the other students of the Ari. Where did Sarug take you? To even beyond divine thought. He took you to divine delight. He took you to a level called the Sha'ashua, which is the Ein Sof, completely self-contained in what, <laughs> what Sholom actually referred to in Major Trends as this beautiful phrase called autarkic self-sufficiency. In other words, that's the level of the Shashua. Already at the level of the Shashua, God's having thoughts. And there's no question that when you open Limudat Silut, that it is a highly erotic depiction, auto-erotic depiction of the divine. We won't go too deep into that, but there is a theme that has been noted by scholars. And then he'll take you into the level of vibrations, and from vibrations it creates letters. We then have a malbush, a garment of letters that gets folded, and in that space then is the tahiru, in which is the halal, in which everything's going to happen, and then it will join up with vital. But these are very, very important points to realize that they might look on, oh, they're having an argument about cosmological angels on a pinhead, but it's much, much more than that. Because these differences are going to have tremendous influence on Jewish spirituality and how it's approached in a Kabbalistic framework. Now, one of the books, if I was speaking about a book tonight, and if I was to follow my own system and just pick one or two books, almost unquestionably one of the books I would choose would be what scholars, I think, would probably regard as the... Hard because there's some very stiff competition, but at the end of the day, one of two. If you don't count the Etzchayim, if you don't see the edited, edit, editing project on the Etzchayim, which was around the middle of the 1600s, and if you see that more as belonging to the Vitalian writings of the late 1500s, then probably the most dominantly influential Kabbalistic text. And I have spoken about it in other contexts because it's so important historically that even when you talk generally about the 17th century in Jewish history, you don't have to go too far below the surface to, meant to come across the influence of this book. And it was a full-on Kabbalistic text. And it was, of course, Emek Hamelech. The Valley of the King. I have to tell you, you know, I was, um, I mean, maybe we'll edit this out, I don't know, but um, I, I was telling Yoram last night, actually, or yesterday, in trying to work out what I was wanting to talk about in this talk, I listened to a series I gave in Yerushalayim in 2009. And what I want to communicate to you, I don't really know much about what happens on the website which holds the podcasts that, I, that are given by this chap called David Solomon. I did look at the website and I was really impressed by the job that Marjorie's done on it. Uh, but I actually went into the website and I don't often go in there to, to, to listen to these talks because I wanted to see whether I could get a focus. And frankly, frankly, any detail that I would want to go into now, you'll find in those three talks on the post-Lurianic. So I don't feel like I'm pressured to go into that. I want to do something a little more general now. So I'm only going to touch upon ideas that are really like literally zooming across. And what's interesting, of course, is that I want you, if you can, to listen to that and follow it, because I was kind of impressed by myself, although at the same time, while I was going, oh, that's a good point, David, oh, that's excellent, 
while I was doing that, I was also listening to myself going, oh, you're such an Amaretz. You really don't know what you're talking about. Because 12 years ago, I was on the other side of before certain adventures that I've gone on in the last 12 years that make you hear your own work but it's still good and I'm still recommending it and I don't often plug my material and you people know that but I actually was very entertained by it I so Emekamelech I discussed there as I also discussed Vital Sarugas I also discuss a lot of the material I'm talking about tonight in much greater detail because it's across three lectures but Emekamelech is a total watershed Kabbalistically. It's in the Sarugian tradition and it is a book that ecstaticizes completely the existence of the primordial thought in God. The entire first part of the book is called The Gate of the Shashua. That's his focus that thought is going to concretize, that primordial thought is going to concretize in the world as the people of Israel. It's, they're not two different things. It is the same thing. It's just in this world, we are its manifestation. What is coming really through the cove and you know what I'm referring to when I say the Kav. Remember, just the three first basic steps of Lurianic Kabbalah are that Ein Sof, we did this last week, Ein Sof, Tzimtzum creates Halal, the Halal is the vacuum, Tzimtzum is the act of contracting away, the Halal is the vacuum, and then Ein Sof re-enters the Halal, in a cove, a line. So, a uh, huge geometric adumbration of uh, the whole theocosmic picture. And what is coming down through the cove for Rabbi Naftali Bachrach, who wrote Emek HaMelech? <laughs> and what is being revealed, or what is coming through, is in fact... Torah Hasod, Kabbalah itself, the Torah, the, 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 the mystical meaning of the Torah, which each and every individual is to generate. The point of Kabbalah is the revelation of Kabbalah, but it's not something that is coming down in a way that we just receive it from on high, we ourselves generate it. Each of us has the ability to generate Torah Hasod, and it comes through us. Obviously, it's going to require different types of preparations and different types of journeys, but all of us have a unique Kabbalah to reveal. There's only <laughs> Yeah, so I'll come back to Emek Melech in a moment, but what Emek Melech managed to do somehow was translate the Kabbalah of the Ari through Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael Sarug into this absolute geo-historical reality that we live in. And he's pretty convinced and he's very ecstatic about it and he shows you how it all works that the redemption of the cosmos through the people of Israel, the manifestation of the primordial thought behind creation, is imminent. It's about to happen. Of course, he wasn't entirely right in his age. He, it is, of course... Huh, so this book is so influential that I'm going to talk about its normative outcomes. It did, of course, have some quite significant antinomian outcomes. It was, of course, the book that fused the mind of Nathan of Gaza. 
so that when Nathan of Gaza subsequently met Shabtai Tzvi, Nathan was able to completely <laughs> subsume the Sabbatean project within a wider Kabbalistic mythical framework and that really emerges from Emek HaMelech and it's a book that has not yet been translated completely interestingly enough some of it was translated into Latin in the 17th century uh, but we're still awaiting the full translation of that book and I'm not even sure that we are ready for that it's not an easy book bearing in mind that some of the great sages have said some interesting things about it I won't, I mean it's another one it's, a, it's, it's another talk and we have to bear in mind that a lot of Kabbalistic energy was being suppressed in the second half of the 17th century and the first half of the 18th century why was Kabbalistic energy being suppressed then? Correct, Shabtai Tzvi. Because Shabtai Tzvi was a movement, an antinomian movement that completely demoralized the entire Jewish world and yet was directly the outcome of the combination of Lurianic Kabbalah and mental instability so it was perceived then and so it is perceived now that they thought that Kabbalah once again acquired this kind of dangerous aura and there were many brilliant minds throughout the Jewish world that were dissuaded from the spiritual journey that Kabbalah offered because of that suppression for the next 50 years after Shabtai Tzvi all the rabbis everywhere we're on Shabtai watch. Not only is he coming back and who's going to claim to be that dude, but who's learning Kabbalah in a way that we think is a bit dodgy. Remember that Nathan of Gaza was like the first big theologian of, Sabbat theologian of Sabbateanism. And he did write some remarkable works. People have said that if he didn't get mixed up with Shabtai Tzvi, he probably would have been one of the greatest Kabbalists of that generation. And when you read his works, like Sefer Abriah and Rosh Hashanah and so on, you can see that there is a, a very, very original creative mind at work, but we can't go into Sabbateanism now, although it's kind of interesting, even at the level that we're at, because as, as, as was noticed by a number of other Kabbalists who put their bathers on and went into Sabbatean theology to have a look, so that they could actually talk about why it was wrong. It's not enough. It's not enough for the true Kabbalists to sit in a room and shut the door and put their hands over their ears and go, I don't want to know about it. With anything, with anything, whether that be Sabbateanism or whether that be the Enlightenment, which was happening at the same time. So those who went into Nathan will tell you that what he's basically saying, and the Ramchal was one of them, is what Nathan's basically saying is that the soul of the Messiah, which comes down the cove, can't just meet this reality. It has to go through the klipa. It must go below and through here and come out the other side. It, it's a whole world, we're not going to go into it now, but it was dark. It's this a dark idea about the soul of the Messiah and that really the only way that the messianic fulfillment will come is that we have to get God's attention and really the only way we're really going to get God's attention is by redeeming sparks deep within the klipa, deep within the husk. And the only way we're going to ostensibly be able to do that is by sinning, ritualized sinning. We could talk a lot about Sabbatean ritualized sinning, and I reckon that would be enjoyable. I might leave that for Shavuot night, Rabbi Carl. It sounds like that's something that I might get into then. 
since I believe that's not a million miles from the theme. <laughs> By the time we get to the 18th century and the early parts of the 18th century, there is a dominating debate amongst those who are studying and learning Kabbalah and working with these revelations of the Zohar and particularly the Ari. You have to understand, it takes, you, before you're, in other words, by the 18th century, you're not even going anywhere near Lurianic thought until you have been through everything else. You're not wandering down to Golds and buying a copy of Etz Chaim and taking it home and going, oh, I wonder what it says. You are studying all of Tanakh, well, at least Chumash, and you're doing Mishnah, and you're doing all of Talmud, and you're doing Midrash, and then you'd probably incorporate some Zohar before you got to the point where you take that and go down to Golds and get to the Etz Chaim and open it up and go, oh, I wonder what it's saying. The effect will be the same. Nothing prepares you for the Etz Chaim. So people are already reeling over the influence of that and they're looking for books like Emek HaMelech and others which are going to present it to them on a plate and then people are going, oh yes, but, but Emek HaMelech, it's talking about things that we're not finding in its Chaim. So already we can start to see the effect of the bifurcation. But by the time you get to the 18th century, it's dominated by a debate in the Kabbalistic world between, in the following proposition, in the following question, the whole system that the Ari has described, and I did describe that system in brief last week, the Tzimtzum, the Shvirah, the smashing of the vessels, the Tikkun of Partsufim to contain the world, the raising of sparks, the raising of worlds, the massive synthesis of all of the different strands that had come before the Ari into this picture. Is that picture real? Is it literal? Or is it a mashal? Is it a... Obviously the word mashal is virtually untranslatable, but a number of different possible English options would be allegory, parable. Is it a mashal? So there's a very famous statement, and it's a fantastic statement because it's so enlightening in a number of areas, and it's still a statement that is repeated today. I hear it uh, from time to time. And it's a famous statement, and it's recorded, uh, and it's a statement made by the gigantic spiritual figure of the 18th century, of the 1700s, Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, who we'll touch upon uh, in a moment. I think it's impossible to move without the Gra, but in this field, but who said that it is, of course, an allegory. It's a mashal. But only three people have ever understood the nimshal. The nimshal meaning that which is being allegorized. In other words, the reality behind the parable. What is it about? Only three people have ever understood the nimshal, says the Graf. So Chaim Velozhin writes there that he works out who those three are. Because the grass is, only three have ever understood it, and one of them is the Ramchal. So Chaim of Velozhin writes there, when he records this, so he writes, okay, so we're going to assume that Chaim Vital understood the Nimshal, because he's the one kind of writing it down. Uh, the Gra must understand the Nimshal because the Gra made the statement and the other one's the Ramchal. 
That tells you a lot. I know that people are looking at me blankly in this room, but I can tell you it tells you a lot. First of all, it tells you that the Gras is very, very much situated in that 18th century discussion. The Italian Kabbalists had produced a number of very, very serious and influential works. Works like Shomere Munim by Rav Yosef Ergas, which tries to synthesize Jewish philosophical concerns coming out of medieval philosophy with Kabbalah, with the premises of Kabbalah, to show that Kabbalah is a type of and even a superior form of philosophy. Right through to people like Emanuel Chayreki, who are writing a book called Mishnah Hasidim, which is an absolute contracted version, like a Mishnah of Lurianic thought. And that Mishnah was studied all around Europe, especially throughout the 18th century. And, of course, there is the Ramchal. And one of the books I was going to compare tonight, if I, on this particular track, is I was going to look at Emek HaMelech, because Emek HaMelech was very influential on the next century, and particularly upon the Gra. The Gra didn't count. Naftali Bachrach was one of those who understood the Nimshal, but that didn't stop the Gra basically drinking Emek HaMelech like it was mother's milk. It would be a mistake for anybody to think or to have the misapprehension, as I have come across in some places, that the Gaon of Vilna was an anti or not a Kabbalist. People sometimes make that mistake. They think, oh, the Gaon of Vilna was against the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement was based on Kabbalistic ideas. Therefore, the Gra must have been anti-Kabbalistic. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Gra is one of the enormous mountains of Kabbalah in the 18th century. He's a huge Kabbalist. But his picture is pretty much in line with the Emekamelech and the Sarugian picture and so on. Although, of course, he's read Vital because, obviously, the Gra had read everything. But I was going to look at Emekamelech and I was going to look at, at it in comparison with... of the Ramchal. Put your hand up if you don't know what Ramchal means or stands for. Oh, very good. Don't be embarrassed. We're all, we're all students here. So Ramchal stands for Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. I've spoken elsewhere about the Ramchal. It is uh, it is a is a, more than a subject. Uh, but the Ramchal basically is hanging out for his early decades around the in in Padua about 50 miles from Venice, and he's spending a lot of time, as you know, those of you who are familiar with the career of the Ramchal, the Ramchal is a very, very magnetic figure for anybody that's dabbling in this area. Um, and as you know, uh, there was this, there was that, and then there wasn't. And over the course of his tragically brief life, the Ramchal's output was so profound, so immense, uh, that once again, we think that those who uh, have been influenced by the Ramchal and have gone deeply into the Ramchal will know that there is something of the Ramchal that is also uh, of an avatar of whatever revelation is coming into the world most people would be more than happy to accede to the Ramchal that he was a nitzotz, a very, very big nitzotz, a very big spark of the revelation of the Ari. One of the things that the Ramchal is trying to establish in a book like Klach Bidchei Chochmah, which stands for 138 openings of wisdom in which he addresses 
the content of Etz Chaim in 138 small paragraphs that he then explains. And if you understand them, you'll be able to sail through Etz Chaim and understand it because he wants to tell you the Nimshal, what it's all about. And the first thing he makes you realize, <laughs> the first thing he makes you realize is that Lurianic Kabbalah can be understood as a logical system. It has a logic to it. And he breaks down the logic, he breaks down the processes. It starts from the proposition that Teva Hatov Lahitiv, that it is in the nature of the good to bestow good. God is the ultimate good. The whole of creation exists because Teva Hatov Lahitiv, by definition, God bestows good. And bestowing good equals creation. We don't really deserve it, but God wants to do that because that's in the nature of God. But from that foundation, in a kind of almost a, a Cartesian build-up, and the Ramchal has read Leibniz, and almost unquestionably he read Spinoza, or they wouldn't have told anybody. But the Ramchal is fully across what's happening in the wider world, although he's still clinging to some aspects of a kind of uh, medieval Aristotelianism in some ways, but he's breaking new ground in understanding the Arias logical system. And then he takes that, by the way, 138 openings of wisdom has been translated, so it's an obtainable text even for those who are not negotiating the Hebrew, and even for those who are negotiating the Hebrew. It's the Ramchal at the end of the day. You might want to make sure you understand it correctly so a translation doesn't go astray. The Ramchal is more than a set of books. The Ramchal is a derech. It's a way. It's a journey. So part of the landscape, if you look around today, you will see people, very, very, very few people are studying just the Ari. Usually, you're studying the Ari guided by one of the great figures that we're talking about. It would not be Naftali Bachra. But once you get to the next century is where these divergent roads begin to concretize into pathways and schools of thought. The Ramchal is a whole derech. He influences others, but even if you sat down today, and studied his works, remember that the Maskilim, even the Chazafreses, were excited by the Ramchal. The Ramchal is considered the granddaddy of modern Hebrew in Basam. What year is it, 1830? No, 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 a hundred years earlier. Ramchal is born in 1707, he passes away in 1747. And I would even venture to say that there's another book that you should look at if you really want to understand. It's a book called Derech Hashem. Anyone come across Derech Hashem? Yes? Sure, obviously. Derech Hashem is not so much a book about Kabbalah, it's more a book about theology, really. It's the logic of what's going on with God and the world and so on. Basically, you wouldn't even recognize it as a Kabbalistic book. And I guarantee you, if you ask your no such thing as standard or common, but you're a, you're, you're, you know, a random modern Orthodox rabbi, not Chabad, in the, in the other parts of the Jewish world, a theological question, oh, what's a, what's What's the relationship of angels to God and how does that work? Whatever it is you're asking. And I know most of you don't speak like that, but it's kind of like, you know, Mr. Random does. Chances are 99% that the answer you will get will in some way trace back to something, an idea found in Derech Hashem. Because it basically became the theological and theocosmic outlook for Orthodoxy since the 18th or since the 19th century. 
Remember that uh, the Ramchal got ostracized by a lot of people. His reputation was was started re being reconstructed by the Gra, who said he would walk on foot to sit at his feet and learn. Now, so the Ramchal's a derech, so you can look at that, and uh, that, th there are other places to go and find out more about the Ramchal. Um, but I, that was one thing I was going to do. And then I realized, oh, you know, and I've only got 15 minutes left, I think, but there, there is a lot more mapping to do in the world of Kabbalah. The first thing I really have to do right now, is address <laughs> the relationship between all, all of this, yep, Gaon of Vilna, yep, so we talked about the Gaon of Vilna, yep, and the Gaon of Vilna's Kabbalistic texts, such as his commentary on Sifredit's Niuta that we spoke about in the Zohar talk, and so on, are uh, basically <laughs> almost I mean, transforming Kabbalah on so many levels, introducing the concept of psychologizing Kabbalah to an extent, introducing the, uh, the, 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 the idea that um, Torah is what is coming through the Kav and the idea that we ascend through uh, mystically, I'm not going to talk about the Gra. I'm not going to talk about the Gra right now because it kind of opens up a number of things, and I wasn't going to go there. So I haven't ordered my thoughts on that. I want to be able to talk about the Gra, but I just for the moment, he's uh, he. It's it's more about the continuation. But it would be remiss of me, and what I really wanted to do was talk about Hasidut. Because uh, we're here at the end of the day, and because it can be ambiguous and confusing to people, the relationship between Kabbalah on the one hand and Hasidut. Yep. And quite a number of people argued that they are not the same thing. And in fact, Hasidut is not really a Kabbalistic phenomenon. Those sorts of people get annoyed when teachers set up courses where they say they're going to teach Kabbalah and then they teach Chassidut. Although it's not completely wrong of them to do that because Hasidic ideas are at the end of the day based upon Kabbalistic ideas but there's a very foundational difference. <laughs> the difference being is that you don't have to be a Kabbalist to understand Hasidut. But you need to be a Kabbalist to write Hasidut. All of the great Rebbe's of all of the Hasidic movements were of themselves great Kabbalists. And they read all of the Kabbalistic material that we're talking about. But the Hasidim don't. This would be in a direct contrast to say Naftali Bachrach and the Graz idea that really you are the conduit and it's about going back to the source. I remember, I remember when I was uh, studying in Chabad Yeshivot that there were, there was, I wouldn't say active discouragement, but there was no encouragement or to go and read Kabbalistic texts. If anything, and, and then when I was actually uh, in Litvishi yeshivas after that, there was even a discouragement. There we still had some 18th century fear and sphincter clenching over what would happen if you studied Kabbalah. Obviously, <laughs> once I started finding Kabbalistic yeshivot, then it changed. Yeah, then it was not we want you, but we don't want Kabbalah. It's well, we want Kabbalah, we don't want you. And then, 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 then you're able to work your way back into a system where you find that there are others who think like you. 
But in a way, Hasidut de is not mystical. It demystifies Kabbalah by giving you what Hasidic leaders believe is the nimshal, is the meaning behind all this. At the end of the day, if we're giving you the meaning, what do you need? You, what do you need to go and read Paradis Rimuni Chaim for? We've read it. We've read it for you. We're telling you. It's this. And so while a book, for example, like the Tanya, could not have been written by anyone that wasn't completely and absolutely immersed in Kabbalistic texts and was a genius and an innovator and an immense spiritual insight into those Kabbalistic texts, it's not at the end of the day a Kabbalistic book. It's a book about how to be a better person in the world, how to be a better Jew in the world, how to do avodah properly, how to serve your creator properly, how to wrestle with your own lusts and passions and become a bainani. What, uh, you know, what, what, <laughs> believe me, if you've ever met a bainani, you'll know that uh, they're not really bainani. They're what everybody else would call a tzaddik, but still, Abainani. Two, probably, and in that podcast series I spoke about, if you go and you listen to it, I spoke about Shnir Zalman of Liadi, and I spoke about Rabbi Nachman. And I actually think that I said there as eloquently as anything that I would say now, so I'm going to move on, and I want to give another little picture. But the relationship between Hasidut and Kabbalah is profound. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they're not. Hasidut is the, of the, of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, the spiritual revolution of the Baal Shem Tov is a wellspring from which the Jewish world is still drawing very, very strongly. But its relationship with Kabbalah is ambiguous. All of the big ideas, I mean, if, for example, I mean, no, I will just say this one point. If you look, for example, the really, the really interesting, I mean, <laughs> They're all interesting. The critical turning point in the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov is really the teachings of the Magid. The Magid was, I mean, the Baal Shem Tov obviously knew Kabbalah, but he wasn't running around saying, hey, here's Kabbalistic ideas. The Baal Shem Tov was busy being the Baal Shem Tov. It's a different thing. But the Magid is starting to kind of put those thoughts into structure and there and show how they relate to deep Kabbalistic ideas. For the Magid, the Tzimtzum <laughs> is an act of Ahava, it's an act of love. In the same way, this is Tzimtzum for the Magid, in the same way that a father will limit his intelligence in order to communicate with the child, he'll even do stupid things to communicate with the child. The father gets joy of that at the level of Ta'anug, and obviously, it sets up the whole mode of relationship and communication with the child. The child doesn't even necessarily realize the limitations that are around him in the intellect of the father. This is a different picture of Tzimtzum that is coming down to... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that is amazing. And the, and the offshoots of that are incredible. And we know that uh, the Alter Rebbe of Shnir of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, was very fixated to some extent on that particular mashal. The Tzimtzum for the Gra, by the way, the Tzimtzum for the Gra goes in several stages. God, creation, is just one level of Tzimtzum. Creation, text, is another level of tzimtzum. Text, reader, is another level of tzimtzum, which obviously parallels yud hey vav hey. God, creation, text, reader. Each of these levels of tzimtzum, as Torah, as chokhmah the higher chokhmah of Ein Sof of the infinite, is brought down into the world. So these ideas in the 18th century are enormous. But in the last five minutes, I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the things that have led to the, what's happening now. The 19th century is really 
<laughs> where Hasidic thought obviously becomes developed. And I mean, I, I, it's, it's criminal that the other great, that the, the uh, Because to read, to read Rabbi Nachman on these issues as well is an entire field of inquiry that I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip over. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm just highlighting that. I'm, I'm, there are things, I mean, actually, even before we get to the 19th, you need to, there, there is one school of thought that also arises in the 18th that is still very, very, very much with us, not just Hasidut. And remember that the great developments in Hasidut Chabad, for example, happened during the 19th and 20th centuries. But there is one school of thought that comes out of the 18th century that hasn't changed. And is one of the more dominant schools in, in, in contemporary, the te contemporary Kabbalistic scene. And that is the school of teachings of the Rashash. Who can tell me who the Rashash is? Sorry? Indeed, indeed, indeed. I, I, I only asked you because I knew you'd know. Rav Shalom Sharabi, who came from Yemen, middle of the 18th century, came to Jerusalem uh, and basically said, no, if you're serious, then you're serious. And there's one, there's one teacher of the Ari. That teacher is Chaim Vital. You can learn it in Etz Chaim, or you can learn it in the Eight Gates series put out by Shmuel Vital, Chaim Vital's son, says that Rav Shalom Sharabi. But that's what it is. You've got the Zohar, you've got the Ari. It is said of him that he was once shown half a page of Sarugi in Kabbalah and he fainted. A total purist. However, knowing the details of the cosmological picture and the system is only part of it. You then have to understand that system so that you can channel that vision into mind and words during prayer and he developed an entire system of kavanot which means directed meditations that take years to master and these guys would take on a normal mincha for those of you unfamiliar with shul services during the week a regular mincha on a weekday in your average shul in Melbourne would take how long? Let's call it 10 minutes. We're talking, these guys are standing there for an hour and a half for mincha with tefillin. Beads of sweat are forming on them. The Amidah in a Rashashian yeshiva is not a simple business. and huge volumes and writings on the Kavanot and so on. But this is a direction that is still very, very, very much with us. Some of the big uh, Kabbalistic yeshivot, particularly in Israel, are focused on the Kabbalah of the Rashash. Obviously, there are many, many aspects to it. The Rashash himself has an entire kind of uh, methodological approach to Lurianic Kabbalah that is itself intellectually interesting. But it's a school. The 19th century sees a number of developments, but particularly the Kabbalah of the Gra develops through his students, such as the Gramam of Menachem Mendel of Shklov, and then his student Yitzhak Isaac Haver, who wrote a book called Pitchei Sharim. These books are still studied. Uh, and then, of course, leading on to the big flowering of the grass school, really, which is the entire works of the Leshem. The Leshem Shvove Achlama being Rav Shlomo ben Chaim Chaitil Eliashov, who's producing the Leshem in the early parts of the 20th century. The Leshem 
is seen in many ways as a direct conduit from the school of the Gra. It is regarded by most of the Jewish world who know of it as an authentic transmission. The Leshem, of course, friends with Rav Kook and that whole period of time. Around that period of time, another Kabbalist comes from Europe called Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag. And who sits down in the land of Israel, I'll finish up in a couple of minutes, who sits down in the land of Israel and writes an entire commentary in modern Hebrew on the Zohar, which he calls the Sulam. What's the meaning of the word Sulam? The ladder. He's known by other Kabbalists when they quote him, those who quote him, refer to him as the Baal HaSulam, the author of the Sulam. But he wrote a great many other things. But he has a particular picture of how to understand the Ari. He has a famous analogy that he gives. I won't go into it now, uh, but his dialectic is between basically God and everything else. And it's between the will to bestow and the will to receive. And he shows you metaphysically how the will to receive <laughs> contains the will to bestow in a way that is productive for the will to receive. His famous analogy, of course, is of a wealthy man and a poor man. The wealthy man's trying to get the poor man to eat and he's entreating him and he's entreating him, but the poor man can't eat because he's just too ashamed of the fact that he's reliant on the wealthy man to feed him. So he keeps rejecting, rejecting, rejecting until the poor man realizes that the wealthy man is so wanting him to eat that he's virtually begging him and therefore by accepting the meal he now becomes the giver and through that the will to receive can unite at the same level of ontic identity with the will to bestow. It's a very interesting metaphysical system. Somewhere in that system, not as I've described it now, but somewhere in all the writings of the Bala Sulam, who argued against most other Kabbalists that it was time for Kabbalistic ideas to be revealed in the world in order to heal the world, Somewhere in that, the Bala Sulam made Kabbalistic ideas accessible <laughs> to people who, once again, wanted to present those ideas as the definition of Kabbalah. They don't tell you, Ashlagians, don't tell you that the writings of the Baal Sulam, as extensive and impressive as they are, and he is a major Kabbalist, but if all of Kabbalistic texts covered that wall, and they wouldn't, there'd be many, many more, they would obviously cover all the walls of the room, but if they just covered that wall, then the writings of Rav Yehuda Ashlag would occupy probably, uh, you know, uh, maybe a tenth of a shelf. So it is profound, but somehow it has borne movements out of it based on Ashlagian Kabbalah. So for example, the Kabbalah Center and so on, Philip Berg, the late Philip, Rabbi Philip Berg and his project, Leitman and his project, and others who have come along to claim that they are teaching authentic Ashlagian Kabbalah. There are Kabbalists now of the last 20 to 30 years the edge of Kabbalah now, and I have very inadequately covered some of the major streams, because there are more, but these are probably the major ones. Uh, 
that we would think of when we think Kabbalah outside the Hasidic movement, because I'm putting the Hasidic movement aside for tonight because there is a, obviously a, uh, an ambiguous relationship there. And because I don't have time, I would, I, I would actually really like to, but I don't have time. But in the last 20 or 30 years, there has been a definite revelation of the concept that I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk series, the concept of synthesis. The concept of synthesis. And this actually picture is just beginning to start from the end of the 19th century, but at the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st, it's really coming to the fore. There was no discussion between people who were quoting a number of these sources with each other. Meaning, if you were quoting the Ramchal, you might quote the Gra. But you wouldn't be quoting the Baal Shem Tov. If you were quoting Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, you weren't quoting the Gra. You weren't quoting the Ramchal. In the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries, and none of them were quoting the Rashash or any of the other Kabbalists who were running around saying, or sitting down and saying, no, this is Lorianne Kabbalah. There was no dialogue, no cross-referencing. When I grew up in Chabad, no one was talking about the Ramchal. Never, didn't, didn't figure. No one was talking about Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav. Didn't figure. I mean, Chabad has what to be impressed with in terms of its own lineage and in terms of its own teachings, but there are other things that are going on. But there was no cross-dialogue. Now that is happening. Now that is happening. There are great Kabbalistic thinkers in the world today who are unifying and synthesizing ideas and are not scared to quote the Bala Sulam and the Baal Shem Tov and the Gra and the Rashash because they know them and because they can see that at the end of the day they're actually all talking about the same thing. And what that thing is, ultimately, is that each of us, as microcosmic units of divine potential, of Demut Adam, both individually and collectively, and not just collectively as Am Yisrael, but collectively as humanity, have the potential to bring down Ein Sof, to bring the infinite into the world, to reveal the infinite in the world by way of synthesis, by way of bringing things together, by unifying them, by working towards Yichud, by working towards unity in the world. It is a very tragic time that we are still seeing that our friends and our families and our people in Israel are once again under such incredible pressures and challenges. But it doesn't help them for us to feel like the Jewish people are victims. The Jewish people are given a role in the world to manifest Ein Sof in the world, to transcend these differences. And one of the amazing things, and I will, I will, I will finish on a point of Chabad, <laughs> Because one of the great things that the Alter Rebbe, for example, is constantly driving at, and, and, and the Alter Rebbe shows you that he's read Ebek HaMelech, is because whereas the grass is the Torah, is the light that is coming into the world, and it is, and for the grass, The Torah is Chochmah. Chochmah is what's coming into the world. The Chochmah that's going to lead to consciousness, to Da'at. But for the Alter Rebbe and those like him, there's a level above Sechel. There's a level above the intellect. There's a level above Chochmah. 
there is the level of ta'anug directly relating to the whole concept of the shashu the concept of ta'anug the delight of God the pure will of God in the delight of relationship with humanity God wants to be here in a revealed way but he is waiting for humanity to fix itself and to fix the cosmos and may that happen speedily in our days thank you for listening to this talk and thankfully for those who followed the series it has been enjoyable obviously obviously massive spread d'escalier that I have after every one of these talks and I realize the things I have not said so I, uh, I thank you uh, for listening to that. Uh, take care and have a wonderful, uh, nice Shabbat, but obviously it's also a wonderful Yom Tov next week. Uh, the Yom Tov of the giving of the Torah. And uh, each time we do that, we have to remind ourselves that as far as the next generation are concerned, we are Sinai. We are the Torah. So take it, that idea on Shavuot and realize what that, that means as a, as, a, as a responsibility and incumbency upon all of us to, uh, to first of all, read the Torah <laughs> and then maybe to say something about it. All right. Take care, guys. All the best. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.